Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, from the Washington Post, a French man wins the right to not be, quote, fun at work. Uh, (laughs) I appreciate that. mm -hmm. I don't want to be fun. Yeah, forget those guys. I mean, you know, it sounds kind of like a leap, but the subhead here is that a consultant was fired after refusing to take part in activities he called humiliating and intrusive, according to the court filing. The man referred to in court documents as Mr. T was fired from Cubic, and that's Cubic that ends with a K, in 2015 after refusing to take part in seminars and weekend social events that his lawyers argued, according to court documents, included excessive alcoholism and mock sexual acts, crude nicknames, and obliging him to share his bed with another employee During work functions. So let's get into some of the details here. So according to the court documents, the guy was hired by Cubic Partners as a senior consultant in February 2011. He was promoted to director in February 2014. He was then fired for professional incompetence in March 2015 for allegedly failing to adhere to the firm's convivial values. So the company also criticized his sometimes, quote, brittle and demotivating tone towards subordinates, and alleged inability to accept feedback and differing points of view. Sounds valid from a corporate standpoint, right? But it's also not the first time a company's drinking culture has come under the microscope in court proceedings. So now these days, some firms have even gone so far as to introduce booze chaperones at company events in hopes of avoiding some issues. There was even an auditor at PricewaterhouseCoopers in England who sued the company over severe injuries at a work event that, quote, made a competitive virtue of excessive drinking. Michael Brockie fell down in the street, went into a coma, and later had part of his skull removed after participating in the company event. In March, insurance marketplace Lloyds of London fined member firm Atrium Underwriters a record one million pounds, which is about 1.2 million U.S. dollars, for serious failures, including a boys' night out where employees, quote, took part in inappropriate initiation games and heavy drinking and made sexual comments about female colleagues. And, you know, France is among the world's most liberal countries in terms of alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. The legal minimum age in public is 18, but there is no regulation of alcohol consumption in private. So for it to get that extreme, or even just for someone in France who probably just doesn't want to make dirty jokes and get super blasted, hard to blame them, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I have no doubt that people in the U.S. have been and will continue to be fired for not participating in, you know, corporate culture shenanigans like this. But to put Mm -hmm. it in his actual termination reasons, like you, you make up a reason. You say, no, he wasn't good at his job. He was bad at math. You don't say, (laughs) we wanted him to drink and he wouldn't. And that's why we fired him. That You're absolutely going to get sued if you say that. He had a brittle tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com and it's titled, 
Cyborgs versus holdout humans. What the world <laughs> might be like if our species survives for a million years. Terminator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And did, wasn't there like a Raised by Wolves TV show thing that happened recently about like real pure humans being raised by cyborgs? Uh, the wolf thing has happened a few times. I have not heard of any cases of humans raised by cyborgs yet. <laughs> But, Not yet. You know, that could be coming. So <laughs> most species are transitory. They go extinct, branch into new species, or change over time due to random mutations and environmental shifts. A typical mammalian species can be expected to exist for a million years. Modern humans have been around for roughly 300,000 years. <laughs> so what will happen if we make it to a million years? Science fiction author H.G. Wells was the first to realize that humans could evolve into something very alien. While Wells' evolutionary models have not stood the test of time, the three basic options he considered still hold true. We could go extinct, turn into several species, or change. An added ingredient is that we have biotechnology that could greatly increase the probability of each of them, making ourselves smarter, stronger, or in other ways better using drugs, microchips, genetics, or other technology. Brain emulation, as in uploading our brains to computers or artificial intelligence, may produce technological forms of new species not seen in biology. Hmm. It's impossible to predict the future perfectly. It depends on fundamentally random factors, ideas, and actions, as well as currently unknown technological and biological limits. But it is the author Anders Sandberg's job to explore the possibilities, and he thinks the most likely case is vast speciation, when a species splits into several others. Hmm. These visions, however, leave many cold. It is plausible that even if these technologies become as cheap and ubiquitous as mobile phones, some people will refuse them on principle and build their self-image of being normal humans. In the long run, we should expect the most enhanced people, generation by generation or upgrade after upgrade, to become one or more fundamentally different post-human species and a species of holdouts declaring themselves the real humans. <laughs> Through brain emulation, a speculative technology where one scans a brain at a cellular level and then reconstructs an equivalent neural network in a computer to create a software intelligence, we could go even further. This is no mere speciation, it's leaving the animal kingdom for the mineral or rather software kingdom. Yeah, I mean, there's a halfway point where you're giving yourself a better heart and, you know, better organs and mm -hmm. guns in your arms before you're fully <laughs> going into, okay, just take those neurons, stick them in a computer, get rid of the human body entirely. Yeah, exactly. So software intelligence has other advantages, too. It can be very resource efficient. It can also think and change on the timescales set by computation, probably millions of times faster than biological minds. Yet humanity is perhaps unlikely to remain the sole intelligent species on the planet. While there are profound uncertainties and disagreements about when or if it becomes conscious, artificial general intelligence, meaning it can understand or learn any intellectual problem like a human rather than specializing on niche tasks, a sizable fraction of experts think it is possible within this century or sooner. Hmm. Physical beings have a distinct disadvantage compared with software beings moving in the sluggish, quaint world of matter. Still, they are self-contained, unlike the flitting software that will evaporate if their data center is ever disrupted. Natural humans may remain in traditional societies very unlike those of software people. This is not unlike the Amish people today, whose humble lifestyle is still made possible and protected by the surrounding United States. We have established human rights and legal protections, and something similar could continue for normal humans. So, is this a good future? Much depends on your values. <laughs> you don't uh, say. <laughs> yeah. A good life may involve having meaningful relations with other people and living in a peaceful and prosperous environment sustainably. 
From that perspective, weird post-humans are not needed. We just need to ensure that the quiet little village can function, or perhaps be protected by unseen automation. Some may value the human project, an unbroken chain from our Paleolithic ancestors to our future selves, but be open to progress. They would probably regard software people and AI as going too far, but be fine with humans evolving into strange new forms. Others would argue what matters is freedom of self-expression and following your life goals. They may think we should explore the post-human world widely and see what it has to offer. Some may be uncertain, arguing that we should hedge our bets by going down all paths to some extent. So, here's a prediction for the year 1 million. Some humans look more or less like us, but they are less numerous than they are now. Much of the surface is wilderness, having turned into a rewilding zone since there's far less need for agriculture and cities. Here and there, the cultural sites with vastly different ecosystems pop up, carefully preserved by robots for historical or aesthetic reasons. Under silicon canopies in the Sahara, trillions of artificial minds team. <laughs> the vast and hot data centers which power these mines once threatened to overheat the planet. Now most orbit the sun, forming a growing structure, a Dyson sphere, where each watt of energy powers thought, consciousness, complexity, and other strange things we do not have words for yet. If biological humans go extinct, the most likely reason, apart from the obvious and immediate threats right now, is a lack of respect, tolerance, and binding contracts with post-human species. Maybe a reason for us to start treating our minorities better. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Might be. Yeah. I mean, I think you don't need to tie it into a weird future sci-fi thing to say that. That's fine. You can just say that. Right. But... <laughs> All of that being said, I think one area of comfort in case you're terrified of this million years into the future vision is that we really are finding the ways in which the body is truly integral to the whole mind-body connection thing. Mm -hmm, and also, yeah. software is bad. Yeah. I'm just going to say that <laughs> as a software developer. Anyways, next link. Next link. All right. Well, we've got a little bit of a strange one here. It's a YouTube video from Cheddar News. And it's called What the Secret Service Really Does. Oh. And of course, as a video, it starts off with all these various movie clips of what we think the Secret Service is, right? You know, diving on top of the president, taking a bullet, wearing sunglasses mm -hmm. all the time. But it turns out that's only a small part of their job. And in the beginning, it wasn't part of their job at all. Mm. So the Secret Service was created by Abraham Lincoln on April 14th, 1865, which was ironically just hours before he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. But, like I said, it wouldn't have done him any good to have signed the bill a week earlier because initially they were a subset of the Treasury Department and their job what? was to investigate counterfeiters. So uh -huh. counterfeiting was a huge problem during and after the Civil War to the point that somewhere between one third and one half of all circulating U.S. currency was fake. <laughs> so they did their job and they'd been chugging along doing counterfeit investigations for 36 years when, in 1901, President William McKinley was assassinated. And the government realized they didn't have any kind of police at the federal level who could investigate this crime. So they assigned the task to the Secret Service, not as bodyguards for future presidents, but just to figure out after the fact who had committed this particular crime. Then, in 1906, President Roosevelt brought in Charles Bonaparte as his attorney general. And the name was not a coincidence. This guy was actually Napoleon's grandnephew. And Bonaparte helped secure funding for the Secret Service to officially begin protecting the president and his family as part of their duties. 
But he also really accelerated this idea that the Secret Service was available to him whenever he needed investigators for a crime that he felt like the individual states were not going to handle appropriately. And he was (laughs) calling them up all the time until in 1908, Congress said, hey, stop it. That isn't cool. You can't keep (laughs) borrowing these guys. And they passed a law that said no one else could borrow the Secret Service. So Bonaparte said, well, if I can't have them, then I'm going to create a new department of investigators that do belong to me. And he took (laughs) nine of his favorite Secret Service agents, plus 25 new hires, and created the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Ah. But even though they completely took over the post-crime investigative stuff and no one else was supposed to be borrowing the Secret Service, The Secret Service still remained this kind of catch-all department that kept getting assigned duties whenever the government didn't know who else to give them to. Oh, dear. So by the early 2000s, they were doing tons of different stuff, and the Department of Homeland Security was formed. So at that point, they decided it made more sense to officially move the Secret Service out of the Treasury Department, even though they were still in charge of chasing down counterfeiters, and that remains a key part of their job even today. So officially, these days, the Secret Service has four mandates. First, economic safeguarding, or to protect the integrity of U.S. currency. Second, cyber investigations, which includes network breaches, ransomware attacks, wire fraud, and credit card fraud, both online and through in-person physical devices like ATM skimmers. So, I mean, if you commit fraud or try to counterfeit a dollar bill, you still will get visited by the Secret Service, not the FBI. Huh. Third, public safety which is very vague, but generally allows them to assist the FBI in terrorism investigations. And fourth, national security, which, of course, includes offering protection to our own president, but also to visiting world leaders and other high-ranking diplomats and officials. And that's kind of it. There's also some neat footage of what past Secret Service agents looked like. For example, it was apparently very common for them to stand completely unsecured on the running board of moving vehicles. Presumably until Kennedy was shot and presidents stopped riding in open cars. And you can also kind of see the evolution of their fashion over the years as they go from these tan suits and like straw boater hats in the 30s all the way up to the dark suits and sunglasses. And, you know, overall, it definitely makes it clear that the Secret Service's job is way more boring most of the time than the movies portray. Like, if you sign up, uh, you're going to be investigating counterfeiters. You're not going to be taking a bullet for the president. But there's that ambiguity might be fun when it's like, hey, FBI needs some extras. Let's go help them yeah. out. You know, those guys working in the counterfeiting department are like wearing sunglasses anyway. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still cool. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, from technologyreview.com, we've got an update for those of you making end-of-life planning changes. The holidays (laughs) are such a great time to get together with the family, but real talk, you better know what the wants of your loved ones are because it's going to save a lot of grief if you're trying to guess that after the fact. But one factor we all need to take into account now is telling partners or parents whether you want your eggs, sperm, or embryos to be used after you've died. Oh, so we start with an example, Peter Zhu. He was only 19 when he died following a skiing accident in New York. His donor card made it clear he wanted to donate his organs, but his parents wanted to collect his sperm too. They told a court that they wanted to keep the possibility of using the sperm to eventually have children that would be genetically related to Peter. The court approved their wishes, and Mm. Peter's sperm was retrieved from his body and stored in a local sperm bank. We have the technology to use sperm and potentially eggs from dead people to make embryos and eventually babies. And there are millions of eggs and embryos and even more sperm in storage ready to be used. 
So when the person who provided those cells dies, like Peter, who gets to decide what to do with them? Mm. That was the question raised at an online event held by the Progress Educational Trust, which is a UK charity for people with infertility and genetic conditions. The panel included a clinician and two lawyers who addressed plenty of tricky questions, but provided very few concrete answers. In theory, the decision should be made by the person who provides the eggs, sperm, or embryos. And in some cases, the person's wishes might be quite clear. Someone who, for example, might be trying for a baby with their partner may store their sex cells or embryos and sign a form stating that they are happy for their partner to use these cells if they die. But in other cases, it's a lot less clear. Partners and family members who want to use the cells might have to collect evidence and convince a court the deceased person really did want to have children. And not only that, but that they wanted to continue their family line without necessarily becoming a parent themselves. Robert Gilmore, a family law specialist based in Scotland, said at the event, quote, the law in this area makes my head hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and that's also because the law varies depending on where you are, too. Posthumous reproduction is not allowed in some countries, and in many others, it's just unregulated. In the U.S., laws obviously vary state by state. Some states will not legally recognize a child conceived after a person's death as that person's offspring, according to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And the people who want to use the eggs, sperm, or embryos of dead partners or family members are often painted as selfish, but in James Lawford Davies' experience, that just isn't the case. He's a UK-based solicitor specializing in reproductive and genetic technologies, and he has already been involved in similar cases. Quote, all of these cases have involved incredibly brave people who have been faced with tragedy, and they all wanted to deliver on the wishes of those who had died. But there's one thing that everybody who has spoken on this topic agrees on. Each case is unique and should be treated individually. It's just really hard to generalize when it comes to this kind of stuff. So in the same way that we think about organ donation, we should all be writing down whether like, yeah, go for it. Let's see what happens. Or, you know, please don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's tricky because thinking about it, I, my instinct is like, no, I don't want people making a bunch of babies out of my genetic code. But if it were discovered that my genetic code had some sort of crazy gene that could cure whatever, mm -hmm. and then they couldn't get at it because I had gone and signed this thing thinking, oh, I don't want you to make a bunch of babies out of me. Like, I would feel bad. I would want some sort of magical genetic material that happened to be inside me, they found out later, to be usable. And the thing with legal documents, especially estate planning, is you can really customize the absolute crap out of them. And That's true. And I know I started this off with like, oh, Thanksgiving holiday table. The article in MIT Technology Review quotes the <laughs> biologist as saying, we often tell people that Thanksgiving, when you're sitting with your family, it's a good time to express <laughs> your wishes. They are very hard conversations to have, but wow. how else are you going to make your wishes known? Yeah, and it would definitely liven up the Thanksgiving dinner table, honestly. <laughs> like, that would you know, be fun. You want to wrestle this conversation away from political matters, I promise posthumous reproduction is the right. way to go. <laughs> Excellent, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from quantamagazine.com, and it's titled Crucial Computer Program for Particle Physics at Risk of Obsolescence. Oh, no! <laughs> Already. <laughs> so, particle physicists use some of the longest equations in all of science. 
to look for signs of new elementary particles in collisions at the Large Hadron Collider, for example, they draw thousands of diagrams that depict possible collision outcomes, each one encoding a complicated formula that can be millions of terms long. Summoning formulas like these with pen and paper is impossible, even adding them with computers is a challenge. The algebra rules we learn in school are fast enough for homework, but for particle physics they are woefully inefficient. Programs called computer algebra systems strive to handle these tasks, and if you want to solve the biggest equations in the world, for 33 years one program has stood out. Form Developed by the Dutch particle physicist Joost Vermaseren, form is a key part of the infrastructure of particle physics. However, as with surprisingly many essential pieces of digital infrastructure, form's maintenance rests largely on one person, Vermaseren himself. Hmm. And at 73, Vermaseren has begun to step back from form development. Due to the incentive structure of academia, which prizes published papers, not software tools, no successor has emerged. Vermaseren released his software in 1989. By the early 90s, over 200 institutions around the world had downloaded it, and the number kept climbing. Since 2000, a particle physics paper that cites Form has been published every few days on average. Wow. Form's oldest and most powerful advantage is how it handles memory. Just as humans have two types of memory, short-term and long-term, computers also have two types, main and external. Main memory, your computer's RAM, is easy to access on the fly but limited in size. External memory devices like hard disks and solid-state drives hold much more information but are slower. To solve a long equation, you need to store it in main memory so you can easily work with it. Memory has grown since Form's early days from 128 kilobytes of RAM in the hmm. Atari 130XE in 1985 to 128 gigabytes of RAM in the author's souped-up desktop, a million-fold improvement. Mm. But the tricks Vermaseren developed remain crucial. As particle physicists pour through petabytes of data from the Large Hadron Collider, their need for precision and thus the length of their equations grows longer. As crucial as software-like form is for physics, the effort to develop it is often undervalued. Vermaseren was lucky in that he had a permanent position at the National Institute for Subatomic Physics in the Netherlands and a boss who appreciated the project. But such luck is hard to come by. Universities tend to track scientists' publication records, which means those who work on critical infrastructure are often passed over for hiring or tenure. Hmm. Vermaseren has said, I have seen over the years consistently that people who spend a lot of time on computers don't get a tenure job in physics. Without ongoing development, form will get less and less usable, only able to interact with older computer code and not aligned with how today's students learn to program. Experienced users will stick with it, but younger researchers will adopt alternative computer algebra programs like Mathematica that are far more user-friendly but orders of magnitude slower. In practice, many of these physicists will decide that certain problems are off-limits, too difficult to handle, so particle physics will stall with only a few people able to work on the hardest calculations. In April, Vermaseren is holding a summit of form users to plan for the future. They will discuss how to keep form alive, how to maintain and extend it, and how to show a new generation of students just how much it can do. With luck, hard work, and funding, they may preserve one of the most powerful tools in physics. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it really is just a funding issue. They don't want to pay anybody to continue to do this. And someone's going to have to bite the bullet and say, look, we all need this. So we're going to pay this person to you keep mean, maintaining Capitalism this. is ruining the party yet again? Well, yeah, because infrastructure is never sexy. It's always critical, but it doesn't make you any money. And nobody likes to spend money on things that don't make you money. But if you don't, 
-hmm. you get power outages mm -hmm. and particle physics stops. And, and specifically maintenance of infrastructure, yeah. because it seems like there's always this, we want the new best thing that will disrupt or replace. I mean, I guess it is kind of nice to know that this is a problem for scientists, too. Like, it's not just blue collar workers who are like, trust me, you want the lights to stay on. These are actual particle physicists saying yeah. if you want actual science to continue to happen, somebody's got to fund this infrastructure. Yep. Hopefully somebody listening has an ear at an institution. So <laughs> yeah. go ahead, mention form. That also helps. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next one is from medicalexpress.com. That's express without the initial E. And it's called short-term memory problems can be improved with laser therapy, according to new study. Ooh. This comes from a joint study between scientists at the University of Birmingham in the UK and Beijing Normal University in China. Initially, when I saw this, I thought it was talking about transcranial magnetic stimulation, which has been getting a fair amount of press in the last few years as a treatment for depression. But this is different. It's called transcranial photobiomodulation, or TPBM. And it really is shooting lasers at your brain in the red Whoa. to near infrared spectrum of light. For this study, they aimed the LEDs at the right prefrontal cortex because that part of the brain is well established to be associated with working memory, which, like we were just talking about, is that short-term kind of memory where you're not mm. really committing it, you're just holding it for a second. So they took 90 participants between the ages of 18 and 25 and split them into three groups, where one group received TPBM at wavelengths of 1,064 nanometers, which is the part of the light spectrum that has been shown to be effective in mice. Another group received treatment at a shorter wavelength that they wouldn't expect to have any effect. And then to rule out the placebo effect, the third group had a machine put up to their head, but the researchers didn't actually turn it on. <laughs> After a TPBM treatment of 12 minutes, the participants were quickly shown a set of objects on a screen and then asked to recall the position or color of as many of them as they could. And sure enough, the participants treated with legitimate TPBM performed about 25% better on the memory task, hmm. which is significant, but it does sound a little less impressive when you find out the actual numbers, which were five to six remembered items for the treated group as opposed to three to four remembered items for the untreated groups. But they also gave the patients EEG scans before, during, and after treatment, and the analysis of those scans did show a measurable change in brain activity in the stimulated areas. Huh. Professor Ole Jensen from the Birmingham Group says they won't know for sure until they conduct further research, but they believe that the light is stimulating the astrocytes, which are basically the power plants of the effective neurons, and that improves their energy efficiency and thus their overall processing speed. Unfortunately, one thing they didn't test was how long these effects lasted. They are, of course, mm. hopeful that this could turn out to be a meaningful treatment for things like ADHD, but if it only lasts for a couple of hours, then it's really not going to be that useful. Mm. On the other hand, the basic technology of these things is not that complicated, so I can imagine a world where, if it works, we all have one of these in our homes and we just light up for a few minutes before going to work or whatever. Because it really is just shining bright red LEDs at your forehead. There's nothing invasive. There's no side effects that they know of. And it does seem to help. Yeah. I mean, we could go to like a Pink Floyd laser light concert and come out feeling way better, right? Heck yeah. I mean, maybe that's the reason. Maybe people <laughs> like laser light shows because they're getting boosts in their brain and they don't know it. I <laughs> love it. Next link. Next link. Okay. Atlas Obscura is going to take us into the history of the waffle. <gasps> Y'all like waffles? 
Of course. <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. I really. mean, there's. I will say, there's an ongoing debate in my house of waffles versus pancakes, which are mm. better. And mm. I'm here to tell you, I'm team waffle all the way. Yeah. And some of my offspring are getting written out of my will because <gasps> they don't agree with that. Ooh. But <laughs> Oh, the stakes are high. I, I'm right. inclined That's to right. agree with you. But what's always held me back is the fact that you do need a waffle iron. And our kitchen is mm. so small that having, I can't quite justify it, but the waffle. To many, it is the perfect food because they're easy to make, they're not too sweet, and they're crazy versatile. And that might be why from medieval Europe to now, people have made room for a waffle iron in their kitchens. Oh, this may be the thing that gets me to break. Santa Claus, <laughs> just, you know what to deliver this year. Okay, so this week we are exploring how the waffle wound its way onto plates around the world. Even before the first known waffle recipe was recorded in 1393, people had been cooking batter-based cakes and wafers quickly in special iron pans. Waffles, or wafels, I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's just waffle with one F and the E and L reversed, which was an early term for the food in Dutch and German. It referred to their honeycomb-like shape, but there are irons that go way back that could press shapes like stars and flowers and other kinds of designs. So we're thinking that it's after the Dutch introduced them to the American colonies that's when they became kind of a local favorite here in the U.S. And by the 18th century, waffles became so popular that before the revolution, Americans would hold what are called waffle frolics, where the crispy <laughs> treats were the main event, which sounds totally fun, right? Heck yeah. You can even see museum collections that hold waffle irons from past centuries, which honestly look a lot more like long-handled torture devices. <laughs> But it would take a trio of Californian brothers to make waffles an everyday breakfast as opposed to a special frolic event treat. <laughs> Any guesses on the brand name or the product that still exists oh. today? No, I don't. I mean, like yeah. I'm thinking of regular appliance names like Kenmore and, you know, what? but I don't know. Yeah. Think of the waffle itself. Eggo. Eggo waffles. Oh, of yes. <laughs> Frank, Tony, and Sam Dorsa made mayonnaise. That's what they started making out. They started their business in their mother's house in 1932, and they boasted that their version of condiment used fresh eggs, which is why they named their company Eggo. Oh. Their mayonnaise was so successful that they soon turned to potato chips and then <laughs> a powdered waffle mix. But by the 1950s, frozen food was on the rise. Luckily, mm. Frank was the family inventor, and he engineered a giant waffle iron carousel, thus birthing the Eggo frozen waffle. Now, Kellogg's bought Eggo food products in the 1970s, which is why we don't see those Eggo chips or Eggo mayonnaise anymore. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but Kellogg's still makes waffles the same way and at the same factory that wow. the Eggo guys set up in. And the Dorset descendants are still in the food and beverage industry in the form now of a winery in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Kind of shishi. No but that's how Eggo got started and has remained. I mean, I'd always wondered about the name. Are there eggs in waffles? Yeah, but is that like the reason you're going to market them? No. Right. They're mayonnaise waffles, or at least in <laughs> conception. But if that's not your style, maybe you want to go to CA Bakehouse or California Bakehouse, which consists of little more than a counter and a menu, but they probably boast of being the home of the original green waffle. You can find them in San Jose's Little Saigon neighborhood, and they sell this pandan and coconut waffle 
that has become a local specialty. And hmm. these waffles are very green. I mean, like a vivid, fresh grass green. And the outside is a toasty brown, but the fluffy inside is like nearly turquoise green, speckled with threads of shredded coconut. Mm. Hmm. And during Tet or the Vietnamese New Year, you can smell them everywhere. So if you're curious about trying them out, going to a Tet festival is probably your best bet. And the article is thinking that the French likely brought waffles to Vietnam during the colonial period where they got this delicate pandan floral flavor and green hue because pandan is kind of a local herb delicacy that is found in a lot of Vietnamese. And I am definitely going to need to get a waffle iron after having gone through this article. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I have a shocking amount of experience with waffle irons because mm -hmm. my kids are on a special diet. I had to make all their own breakfast stuff, like almond flour, whatever. But I tried probably every waffle iron on the market trying to find one that was any good because the truth is they all suck. Yeah, like, they all just kind of really get drippy terrible. and they're cumbersome. And like the Teflon coating literally came off on the waffles on some Ugh. of them. Like they're really bad. So I'm here to tell you. And unfortunately, I'm not here to tell you because like the name of the brand is escaping me. But I have <laughs> the absolute king of waffle makers in my house. It's been serving me for like six years. It's amazingly good. It's a commercial brand is the thing. And it is uh. not cheap. Oh. But it is worth the money. I spent more than the cost of this in cheap irons that kept breaking before I found this one. <laughs> and it has lasted forever. So, like, trust me, you want a waffle iron. <laughs> I am ready to receive these pictures. Let's go. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from smithsonianmag.com. It's titled, Neanderthals Cooked Surprisingly Complex Meals. Researchers analyzed charred food remains at two locations, the Shanidar Cave in Iraq's Zagros Mountains and the Franchthi Cave in Greece to gain insight into how Neanderthals and early modern humans prepared food. They found evidence of cooking involving a variety of ingredients, processes, and deliberate decisions. Chris Hunt, an expert in cultural paleoecology at Liverpool John Moores University, tells us our findings are the first real indication of complex cooking and thus of food culture among Neanderthals. At the Shanidar Cave, the researchers analyzed food remains from approximately 70,000 years ago when Neanderthals lived at the site. They also analyzed remains from around 40,000 years ago when early modern humans lived there. At the Franchthi Cave, they analyzed food remnants that early modern humans who were hunter-gatherers consumed some 12,000 years ago. At both archaeological sites, researchers identified similar plants and culinary practices, which may point to a shared food culture, says lead study author Saren Kabukku, an archaeobotanical scientist at the University of Liverpool. The researchers' analysis suggests that early modern humans and Neanderthals weren't just consuming protein from animals, they had complex diets that consisted of a wide selection of plants and varied depending on location. They also used a range of tricks to make their food more palatable, such as soaking and pounding. Hmm. Our work conclusively demonstrates the complexities in the early hunter-gatherer diet which are akin to modern food preparation practices. For example, wild nuts and grasses were often combined with pulses like lentils and wild mustard. Hmm. He adds, more data is needed from Shanidar, but if these results are supported, the Neanderthals were eating pulses and some species from the grass family that required careful preparation before consumption. To further understand the Neanderthal diet, Hunt and his colleagues tried to recreate and eat a similar recipe using seeds found near the caves. Hmm. How'd their creation turn out? 
Mm. Hunt says, it made a sort of pancake come flatbread, which was really very palatable, a sort of nutty taste. If only they had a waffle iron. Exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that would have made the difference right there. So just want to share that short one. I think the more we learn about the past, the more we find out really surprising things as opposed to just, you know, throw stick, eat meat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's really funny that even now we're calling them pulses. But they didn't have blenders. They were so they weren't pulses. They I were was like, so you know, wondering about that because typically beans need like a lot of soaking and boiling to become like digestible. So mm-hmm. I, are we hinting at boiling water as part of those processes? Or I mean, could be. Yeah, definitely, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Astronomers Spot the Biggest Galaxy Ever, Meet the Warrior Librarians of Ukraine, and A Wreck is a Wreck, the Story of the Block Island Wreckers. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayspur Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.